0: Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben Mannhof war, sprach ich schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Und zweitens, sie wollte daher kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland.
1: welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. I'm Ryan Stackos. Today, we have the full New Books Network style treatment for our friend and colleague, the newly minted Dr. Christopher Osmar. His dissertation is as audacious as its title. (laughs) Now I...
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Now I am...
1: Excuse me. You
0: probably need to start that sentence over.
1: His dissertation is as audacious as its title. Now I am in distant Germany. It could be that I will die. Colonial precedent, wartime contingency, and crisis mentality in the transformation from subjugation to decimation of foreign workers in the Nazi Ruhr. In it, Chris traces the long-term development of colonial administration and asymmetric warfare from imperial Africa through the Nazi conquest of Eastern living spaces, and into the lived experience of enslaved foreign workers conscripted into the German war economy. His unparalleled analysis of the climactic mass murder of foreign workers perpetrated by security services during the final phases of the war breaks new ground. Indeed, it was not the collapse of state structure that spawned violence but the activation of context-dependent norms developed over decades amid a crisis scenario they were designed to resolve. Research with which to reckon. But that's enough for me. We are, as always, graced by the presence of Chris Osmar today. So without further ado, Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks. I I think this may be the first time that I've been welcomed rather than being on, on your end of things.
1: We're rolling out the red carpet today for the interview. <laughs> so before we get into the book, this is a great chance for our listeners to get to know you better than they already do. All right. How did you come to the study of history and uh, end up where you are today?
0: Well, I'm really coming to history was almost an accident. Uh, when I first started out college, I, I was doing my undergraduate studies at Michigan State. and I thought I was going to go into engineering. And I had a good run at that, but eventually I ran up against calculus too, and that was a bit of a shock. But I had really been enjoying my humanities courses, because Michigan State, like most decent universities, requires that you have some some contact with that kind of thing. And I found it way more compelling than, than the sciences. And at that time, you know, I, I was also kind of run with this crew that they called themselves the revolution. And you know, they've been putting a lot of ideas in my ear. They, they these are guys that were totally taken with like Noam Chomsky and, you know, they, they never came out and said it, but Marx. Uh And, you know, they, they got my juices flowing. I, I always wound up arguing against them. I, I find myself arguing for the status quo. Uh, and for that, they, they dubbed me OBL for Osmer bin Laden. Uh, but, but all the same, like that kind of experience, like feeling like you're a, a participant in, in things that are going on, uh, it really drove home for me the importance of understanding the world and where we came from and, and what the hell are we all doing here. Uh, and I felt like studying history could help me to, to understand my place that, like that. It was also about this time when I, when I was starting to question engineering that I, I ran up against a book in a coffee shop that, that I frequented. They had this, this bookshelf in the middle of the room, and they didn't come out and say it. But the implication was, if you like one of these books, take it. And uh, I discovered this novel, uh, Herman Woke's War and Remembrance. And I'm a little ashamed to say it, but I, did, I took the book, and I still have it on my shelf today. Uh, this... This book, is fantastic. Uh, it, it's a fictionalized account of one family's experience in the Second World War. And I've recommended it to pretty much everyone that I've met since I read it, and I don't think anyone's ever taken me up on the recommendation. Uh, but what stuck with me from, from this book was the way that Woke treated the, the Holocaust, the experience of the Jews swept up in it and the motivations of the Germans who drove the process. And I had always been interested in, in World War II. But this encouraged me to think more about the Holocaust and the extremes of what happened, uh, and got me interested in explaining why why people can do that. Uh, so this this drove me towards history as kind of a mechanism for understanding people and the world around me. Uh, you know, this this big picture is silly stuff that college freshmen and sophomores think about a lot, <laughs> like uh, that. I'm going to figure out the world. Uh, but all the same, I, I went after it. And uh, one of my professor, professors at, at Michigan State was really effective in fostering this interest. David LaRomer, he was a terribly charismatic character, a uh, historian of modern Italy. And I. it may have been a rumor, but as I understand it, he dabbled in singing opera also.
1: Hmm.
0: And, and in the classroom, <laughs> yeah, he he was a very interesting guy. Uh he, he had this way of calling out business majors and and telling them that, you know, there's there's more than than chasing money and, and he said that you should go out and go after the experiences. And I remember in one lecture that he said that you know should be seeking out meaningful moments of reflection, saying something like you haven't lived until you go to Venice and drink a glass of wine on a veranda. And I, I just ate this stuff up. And he, he was, he guided me through the history program. Uh, He really helped me understand uh, how the profession worked and uh, coached me in the process for applying to graduate school. I didn't know at the time that uh, he was, he was pretty sick and I can't know for sure, but I, I think that, like what he was trying to teach us was like a reflection of like what he had decided was important at the end of his life. And he died shortly after I graduated uh, in 2004. And later that year, I was lucky enough to find myself in Venice on a trip to Europe with my sister. And we went out and found a nice veranda overlooking the canals and Had a toast to David LaRomer with a glass of wine. So I I decided that I wanted to study history, but I wasn't entirely clear on what I wanted to go after. I was really interested in war crimes trials and the the whole dynamic of, of international law uh, can it change the, the way people behave if there's uh, a possible punishment? So when I entered graduate school for my master's program uh, at Ohio University, that was what I was kind of thinking I was going to be pointing towards. And on the suggestion of my advisor there, uh, Norman Goda, uh, I decided to just get started by by picking out a specific trial that sounded interesting and reading through it and and seeing if if there was something that could be done there. Uh, At the time, my my German wasn't so great, and uh, one of the advantages of using American war crimes trials uh, is that they're all in English, Uh, so uh, that was the route that I I decided to pursue. Uh, And I wound up uh, digging into the Einsatzgruppen trials. This was case nine of the subsequent trials uh, at Nuremberg and uh, wrote a a thesis where I I argued that the Einsatzgruppen, these killing squads in the East that were murdering uh, Jews and, and commissars and partisans that we've talked about on here before. I argued that they were kind of proceeding in a gray space of orders that they had vague instructions, but there was an understanding that they were going to elaborate on those instructions. And uh, when they did something that the higher leadership approved of, that practice would be be spread. Uh, and I, I also looked at the, the motivation of the leadership, uh, suggesting that they killed out of a belief that the Jews were a threat. Uh, once I finished this project, uh, I decided that I, I wanted to pursue a PhD. So I had to start thinking about what's, what's next. And I'd become interested in uh, the death marches, the evacuation of concentration camps uh, at the end of the war, I, I decided that I, I wanted to look into the motivation of guards who killed concentration camp prisoners during evacuations. And I, I got started on that project, uh, but then Blatman published his book, uh, The Death Marches, and I kind of felt like it was done.
1: Mm, I remember that.
0: Yeah, It was tough, it's hard to start over. But I'm glad that I switched uh, because uh, I think I found something that's really interesting and Blattman did a a good treatment of it. So the the world has that now.
1: So we arrive at your study now specifically on foreign workers and contingent norms and violence and everything that we're going to unpack today. Mm -hmm. So the big question, so what? What is it that you want readers to take away from your work?
0: The question that I'm trying to answer is why is it that foreign workers were murdered in the end phase, uh, in the last few months of the war, when they had been largely exempt from direct violence up to that point? And I think. What's significant about the murder of foreign workers in the end phase, well, what's important about this time and place is that there was a sudden transition from a, a racially charged system of repression. So a world where if you were not in the in-group, you suffered some kind of deprivation. There was a shift from that to racially charged murder, and I think that that's a transition that we need to understand. How do we move from an oppressive system to a murderous system? And what I'm suggesting is that people operate under a set of norms that are context-dependent. So different situations call for different behavior. And I think that these norms themselves have a history that are tied to that specific type of context. And what I think happened in the Ruhr uh, at the end of the war is that there was a sudden shift in the environment. That this had been the home front, and then the war came home, and it changed from the home front to the front line, and that this prompted crisis after crisis after crisis, activating the norms associated with rear area security, at least among the police. So people who had one day seen themselves as being at home, doing the kind of job you do at home, suddenly found themselves in the war and started doing the kind of job that you do in the war. And when it came to foreigners, uh, how the police approached foreigners on German soil, they acted the way they would have acted in the East in the partisan war. I'm talking about the, the police here. And I suggest that the ideas about how do you behave when confronted with rebellious outsiders that are, are, you are trying to subdue, that those norms came from the German colonial experience and that the German colonial experience also shaped the way that the regime approached foreigners in Germany before that shift from home-front mentality to frontline mentality.
1: Well, since we have the benefit of dealing with the hardcore here on the Third Reich History Podcast, let us take full advantage of this fact and talk historiography. So... Who are you in dialogue with here? What arguments are you pushing forward and where are you going your own way?
0: Well, I think that there's an intervention in the colonial historiography here. Digging for the colonial roots of National Socialism has become rather fashionable lately. But often the question that has been highlighted in the historiography is can we use the colonial experience to understand the holocaust and you know, some have argued for a a direct connection uh, between the genocide of the herero nama and the holocaust jürgen zimmer calls it from from Windhoek to auschwitz he, he sees that they're, they're was a precedent set in Africa that the murder of the Herero people in German Southwest Africa was characterized by an intent to destroy a people. I do think that it's really hard to show a direct connection between the colonial experience uh, and the Holocaust, uh, because the Holocaust is so exceptional. So I'm trying to take conversation in a different direction to look at colonial influences on a less exceptional case that is nonetheless something that is important to explain and that's the control of forced labor uh, which is a much more common experience than genocide there are more clear avenues of transmission of ideas in the case of how do you dominate and extract value from a people uh, than there are in cases of murder or mass murder and genocide in the case of controlling forced labor there's also a clear set of practices uh, for controlling labor uh, that uh, we can see reproduced elsewhere not not just uh, in Germany uh, and the countries that, that Germany controlled but across Europe what I'd like to do is to start a conversation about the effects of the German colonial experience on the German home front during the second world war. I think that this, this is something that hasn't been done. Mm-hmm. People have considered the, the effects on the Holocaust, uh, the effects on uh, Eastern occupation, uh, but how do the ideas that came out of Germany's colonial empire affect people on the at at home in the Third Reich
1: as an aside, I think you would have a really interesting conversation with a behavioralist. Have you had any contact with psychology and some of the the harder social sciences on this front?
0: You know only through really one book that was really influential on me the Neitzel and Veltzer study, Soldat. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of one of them's a psychologist, and I suppose I should know which one, but I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. And they leverage psychology in asking the question of, of why do people kill? Uh, and I've, I've drawn on them in considering what are context-dependent norms. Uh, what they say is that people operate within a frame of reference that a frame of reference is a a way of seeing and understanding the world that you can draw upon to guide your behavior and they also suggest that frames of reference are malleable they can change so that people can shift from one frame of reference to another what i've added here is the idea that there's a trigger that you don't need to move the people to a new place to change their frame. Uh, you can change the environment to change their frame.
1: I, okay. Okay. So, reading this, you deal with a lot of post war trials and the memoirs of, broadly speaking, oppressed and exploited peoples victimized by colonial administrations, right?
0: Yeah. Trials, oral histories, uh, and also the those wonderful raw Gestapo and party documents uh, are my major sources in
1: this. So, without going full Spivak on us, what were some of the issues that you were struggling with when you were dealing with these sources?
0: Well, you know, they've all got their their own quirks. Uh, the trials were an incredible resource um i guess in in understanding like how do you take on a a question like this uh, it's important to know that many of the records were destroyed uh, that is uh, records for the end phase uh, so we don't have them and much less was written down in the chaos of the end phase so there just weren't as many records to begin with Uh, So we have to to plug the holes with something else. Uh, Post-war trials is a great resource for this uh, because the court is trying to answer questions that are similar to the ones uh, that we might ask. So we we have people trying to explain themselves, uh, people that were involved in violent activity at the end of the war, saying what happened, saying why they did it, although uh, this is a problem with the trials, they've got a pretty good motivation to lie. So whenever you go into a post-war trial, uh, I, and I suppose a trial of any kind, it, it doesn't have to be one that's related to Nazi Germany, you have to think about the motivation of the people that are speaking when you read you know, testimony. Um, Expect expect defendants to lie, to, to look for their avenues of possible defense. Uh, so if they can expect that they will be acquitted, if they can show that there were superior orders, then they're going to try and show that there were superior orders. That's the kind of thing that you have to think about. Um, all the same, boy, there is a lot of good stuff in in these trials. Um, the Subsequent trials at Nuremberg also have collected the documents that the prosecution and the defense uh, were using to make their case. Uh, so through the trials, you can access a, a lot of the raw stuff that's out there in some archive somewhere, but they've already done a lot of the collecting on, on specific topics, uh, and that's great as well.
1: So how does the subaltern speak through these documents? I mean, you're dealing with a lot of foreign workers who obviously are under a tightly controlled regime where paper is denied to them so they can't plan, right? So how are you accessing them?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important that the, the subaltern, of the the people who were living inside the system of domination, I think it's important that they have a voice. I think that understanding their experience is important. But there is this issue of they were not able to produce a whole lot of records either. And they didn't have the same kind of privilege that, that say a Gestapo station would have uh, where if they did write something down, somebody's going to save it and put it in a giant brick building with no windows. So it doesn't rot over time. (laughs) And here, yeah. uh, The, the North rhine Westphalia archives, that is the most ugly building I've ever seen.
1: Well, Wait, the current one—the you know current one—that's the green elevator. You Cut that,
0: because uh, I might go back.
1: No, no, no. You don't <laughs> no, no, like? No, no. Are you telling me you don't like the green elevator?
0: No, it's a monstrosity.
1: Oh, I love the green elevator. You should have seen the nasty 1970s modernist bullshit it was in before. It's, well, if that's your feelings, trust me that it is a significant improvement. <laughs> okay. It, <laughs> We'll cut that if you'd like, but oh ask yeah, it's cool, it uh, it's, cool. It it's it's a piece of industrial history, man. It's a piece of industrial history that's my feeling on the matter but uh i it's it is perhaps not the most aesthetically striking building
0: i I understand that you don't want windows in an archives depository, but it just looks wrong it it is for giant brick walls that go straight up into the sky with nothing else around them and that's it
1: for me it's all about the connection with the zolverein seco right because i think that was a that was also a clearing house or something like that so uh, it, it's it's that whole it's i think about it as for me it's more like looking at a vital organ on the circulatory system of the Economy of the of the Rhineland in the 1900s to early 20th century. Excellent. So it 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 is not its architectural (laughs) beauty that is attractive to me per se. Uh, Digressions aside,
0: so when, when it comes to foreign workers, their voice is not in in that archive. It's hard to access in any way other than through oral histories. Uh, but fortunately, there is a great collection of interviews at uh, the Zwangsarbeit Archive. Uh, it's a website, and they've got a collection of hundreds of interviews. Uh, I think it's about four hundred, and all of the transcripts are translated into German. So if if you've got German, you can access everything there. And I looked to them to fill out the picture of what was happening on the ground uh and what it was like uh the problem with dealing with oral histories is that you know in this case um, most of these interviews were taken in the early 2000s Uh, so the people who were narrating Had all kinds of intervening decades between their time uh, working in Germany and the interview to internalize the popular memory uh, of what had happened. Uh, You have to think about how every time someone has recounted a story, that it's going to change a little bit, that that things are going to seep in, Uh, but all the same, I think that the memories that they do carry with them uh, and express can carry an impression of a time and place that is otherwise totally inaccessible. Memories got things like sounds and smells that don't come through in other sources. Uh, Things like hearing a prisoner band playing while detraining on the platform at, at Auschwitz. You can't find that in other sources. Uh, you do have to treat it with a, a good deal of skepticism uh, and the way that I've approached it is that when a narrator says something that I think may have been influenced by the popular memory of, of everything that happened i I let them speak in their own voice uh and don't make any truth claims based on it uh, and kind of leave it up to the the reader to evaluate. And uh, what I do throughout the dissertation is to follow a few of these foreign workers uh, who have given oral histories through the different chapters. Uh, And what I hope to do that way is to... Show that uh, each of these different elements of the the foreign experience, you know, the 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 way they were rounded up, the the conditions that they lived in, experience with the bombing and evacuations, that this was a common experience. All of these things were to individuals that that they all went through many of these things though not all went through all of them. So by following a few, uh, I hope to show that and kind of bring the different topics together.
1: Does victimhood then impart some type of protection where you're not approaching them? You're approaching the sources as critically. Allow me to find a way to phrase this that doesn't sound like an accusation. Mm -hmm. But it's curious to me because... I, I can't come up with a good question. But because, like, I caught that when you were using Auschwitz Lady, right?
0: Uh-huh.
1: If you're looking at a source and the source appears to be reflecting popular narrative rather than personal narrative, because some of these interviews that you're using have been taken 60, 70 years after the fact, uh-huh. why are you affording such a critical eye to the Nazi trials, but then shying away, not from calling the ent- not from calling the experience into question, but certainly certain elements that are equally important for whether or not this is a true representation, right? Because you have one of your one of your examples, the woman recalls being pulled from one line to the other by Mangala, mm-hmm. And we've talked about this yeah. before, right? Where is your role as a historian in that? And why why do you leave it up to the reader to critically assess whether or not that experience is valid when they are perhaps the least equipped because of popular memory to make those distinctions? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, uh, first off, popular memory is popular memory for a reason. It distorts things, but it rarely invents things from whole cloth. So many, many people encountered Mangala on the platform. It is entirely plausible. Mm-hmm. The reason that I have, and let's just let's just take this case for thinking about how to deal with this kind of thing. The reason that I have some question whether it really was Mangala is because you know she would not have known who Mangala was when she got there. Somebody probably pushed her from one line to the other, but she couldn't have known who it was. She probably decided afterwards that it was Mangala. It may have been Mangala. I think that we need to recognize that, but at the same time, we need to hear it. We need to hear that, that, that she thinks that's who it was.
1: I respect that what you do is you take the whole quote and you don't trim out the awkward bits, right? my question is why you spend so much effort trying to contextualize perpetrators but seem to allow victimhood to stand in for critical analysis mm-hmm. for your other sources that that need at least as much critical thought as oral history sources taken after ex post facto rather than mm-hmm. immediately at the time
0: well you do still need to evaluate stories in oral histories on their own merits. And I do I do a lot of it off camera, I guess you could say.
1: Delicious footnote.
0: Well, that's not quite off camera. Uh
1: in the wings.
0: If you encounter the same kind of experience over and over and over again, then I think that there's a good chance that it reflects a genuine pattern. Mm and then I'm comfortable including one example of that. There are more exceptional cases like, like this Mangala case where you have to be skeptical. But the function of the oral histories here is to give a taste of that common experience, the kind of thing that happened again and again and again.
1: Right, but that's what I'm saying, is that you do the you do the same thing with the court cases, right? But you make sure to inform the reader of where and why they should be skeptical when you don't do that for when you're dealing with an otherwise subaltern or victimized individual. Mm -hmm. And that to me seems to be playing favorites with your sources based on social values rather than good methodology.
0: That's, that's not unfair. Uh, I am careful to always signpost information that comes from, in oral history by saying so-and-so remembered or something to that effect. Right. So it's signaling to the reader that this is what they said. Uh, so it's not just a citation of a, an oral history. Uh, it's an in-text indication that this is coming from a particular kind of source. Uh, so I think an, an interested and involved reader is going to pick up on that uh, and uh, apply their understanding
1: I don't know, man. It flies under the radar in the way. That, sorry. Oh no! Go on. Continue.
0: Well, well, you don't, you don't think, you don't think that uh, an interested and involved reader would pick up on those cues that this is a particular kind of source.
1: Speaking as an interested and involved reader, uh-huh. I caught it, but your skepticism slipped under the radar. Okay. Uh, because you, you, you're very clear about posting. You're like sign this is nazi post-war testimony right mm-hmm. and every time that comes up you're like we should be careful we should be careful we should be careful right and so i think it's a matter as a reader it was peculiar consistency because you're not using the same signpost to convey you're using a signpost, a big neon sign whenever it's a mm-hmm. nazi and you're using like a milestone whenever it's a victim Right. Like the way you slip it in through sort of like a slot, a side reference to the type of source and the time that it was taken. And then, but when it's a Nazi, it's like full stop, by the way, before proceeding, enter with caution. Right. Does that make sense? It does. So I can appreciate – I can also appreciate you're dealing with some really tough stuff here, right? And, like, you are – that I am asking you to traipse through a land – or a minefield. Uh But – so, like, I'm not – that's why I said I wanted – I was curious about this discussion and wanted to have it off camera if necessary. But that's – like, I appreciate that you're dealing with a sensitive topic
0: here as well. Yeah. And I think that this should stay in. So is it should victim status give some extra claim to truth? No. I don't think so. But the motivation to outright fabricate something is not in oral histories in the same way that it is in trials. I can agree with that. So we almost don't need to ask that question. Are they, are they just lying? Probably not. We need to understand the the forces that are at work here. We need to understand what the popular memory is so we can see it when it pops up and also see when something that is contrary to the popular memory pops up. But in the absence of evidence to the contrary, I think the default should be to accept that there's some kind of truth behind what people say in oral histories.
1: I'm not saying that there isn't some kind of truth. I'm just saying that uh, I found it confusing because I know that you approach these sources critically. But me reading what you had written gave the impression that I should only approach post war trials critically and did not include the same codes of indicators that uh, like the the indications that we need to weigh how much of this is directly relevant and how much of this is half remembered or shaped by popular memory Mm -hmm. was not coded in the same way. And so as a reader, I came through going, well, I know that Chris thinks differently than what I feel like I'm getting here. I was curious about why you're portraying it in such a, why you approached it in such a different way in terms of uh, like how you conveyed mm-hmm. a critical approach because you had a very, because you had one that was very explicit and detailed when it came to the Nazi sources and one that was almost incognito when it came in text to oral history.
0: It, I think part of that also comes from the function that the two different kinds of sources, If you're constructing an argument that you're walking from here to here and there's three or four steps in between, if any of those steps are broken, then you don't get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. So it's important to make the case for each step. The oral histories are there to demonstrate rather than to fill in one of the steps. So...
1: Mm. It's more about bringing the narrative to life and less about a particular analysis of the structure.
0: Yes, yes,
1: that's yeah, that's totally fair. It's doing something different in your in your writing,
0: but all all the same, uh, like this isn't something that I'd thought about. Uh, I'm I'm sure that some (laughs) some subconscious forces are at work here uh, that I just I want to believe victims, and I don't want to believe perpetrators. So I need to watch out for that. Thank you.
1: All right. Well, that was fun. (laughs) Um, But was good. Do you want to lay out your big three or do you feel like you address that with your so what?
0: I don't think we need to lay it out.
1: Cool. You've done way more work. Like I have done zero work with oral history. So, So I was curious and wanted to know more. And certainly it it gives your work a different it's a strength i would like to incorporate but i have no idea how to work around it <laughs> <laughs> anyway um all right so diving in head first now you begin by looking at the development and transmission of technologies of social control that were developed in the colonies and this is as much about conceptions of non-german labor as it is about specific techniques of exploitation and control So what is the big picture we're dealing with, and how does thinking and practice develop as it moves from the colonies into Europe, and then finally under the Nazis?
0: Okay, so when the Germans established their colonial empire, it was pretty late in the game. Uh, They only became involved uh, after 1886, uh, when most of the world uh, had been colonized. Uh, But this newly unified German state was ready to go out there and and prove its its great power status. And they did manage to grab up some colonies in the Scramble for Africa and some in the Pacific as well. And within the colonies, uh, labor control regimes developed in order to extract value from the natives that were living in the colonies. And specific practices were put in place that uh, persisted beyond the colonies, things like marking natives with identifying badges that that they wore on their clothing, controlling the spaces that they could live in, controlling their place in the economy, how they would work, how they would acquire their means of subsistence and this was a dependent relationship. It's designed to put natives in a position where they need the colonial administration to survive. But beyond like just those those structures for how do you control uh, people that don't necessarily want to work for you, there were also ideas being worked out about difference. Like, what makes the colonizer the colonizer, and what makes the colonized the colonized? And race increasingly became an important component of those kinds of considerations that you know when the when the colonies were uh, first developing, intermarriage between the German colonizers and native women were fairly common. Uh, because it, it was mostly men that had gone off to the colonies, so there was a big gender imbalance. But there was a pushback against this, and laws developed that, that changed the way citizenship worked. So that uh, whereas before, um, if you if you were seen as culturally German um, and you had a German parent, one German parent, then you would be given German citizenship and and considered German. But this approach shifted so that anyone who had a native parent would not get citizenship. And and this was the introduction of the really racial laws in the German colonies, differentiating between people on the basis of biology rather than on the basis of their culture, their behavior. Now, these ways of approaching and controlling non-Germans in the context of a dependent relationship were exported from the colonies and brought back to Germany very shortly after the colonial empire was established uh, in the form of a program that they called internal colonization Uh, The idea was that they could increase the agricultural production of the eastern reaches of the Kaiserreich by intensifying their cultivation of the land by filling it up with with Germans uh, and by controlling the ethnic Poles that lived there. Uh, And in the context of this internal colonization program, Some 32,000 of the ethnic Poles were expelled from the uh, eastern parts of Germany, uh, but the ones that remained were subjected to a kind of labor control that was similar to what was happening in the colonies. So uh, there's controls on spaces, the creation of a dependent relationship, uh, controls on sexuality uh, to uh, try and... Prevent the development of marriages between Germans and Poles. So, these the same patterns were reproduced in Europe. And this continued into the First World War when the, the Kaiserreich became uh, desperate for labor and thought about how they might control prisoners of war and later uh, civilians who were conscripted and forcibly deported to Germany in, in small numbers compared to what happened in the Second World War. But all the same, That moment was another point in the process of transferring ideas about how do you control racially other subordinate workers in a wartime situation from the colonies into the Third Reich. But there's the issue that there's a pretty big time gap between the end of the German colonial empire, at the end of the First World War, and the beginning of the foreign labor program in the second world war
1: have you traced those networks of personnel though because we already have von Epp who obviously influential nazi mover and shaker who comes from
0: uh he was in german southwest africa uh he was he served in china during the boxer rebellion he had been engaged in the colonial endeavor pretty deeply
1: so these guys are still floating around Germany. They don't all die in the
0: 1920s, right? Yeah. So that actual individuals are an important mechanism for transmitting ways of thinking from the colonies to Germany itself. But I mean, we're still talking about a gap of some decades. Uh, so by, by the time uh, Hitler takes power, uh, a lot of the people that had been involved in the colonies were, were pretty old or, or dead. But there were individuals left over. there, And also family connections between important personalities in the Third Reich uh, and uh, people that were deeply involved in uh, the colonial project uh, are there as well. So ideas pass through families. There's also literature. I mean, there, there was a pretty vibrant colonial literature scene in Germany, uh, even when Germany didn't have colonies and institutions. The, the German colonial society did not break up after the end of the First World War. Uh, they stayed together and they, they campaigned for getting those colonies back.
1: So there are both personal continuities and institutional memory when it comes to how to manage the Natives, as it were. Yes. So the Nazi period, what happens?
0: So in the interwar period, when these institutions and individuals were were kicking around, the Nazis also developed their own take on colonialism. They called it Lebensraum, but I do believe that it was... A redevelopment of ideas about what colonies are good for and whether and how Germany should pursue the project of developing a colonial empire. So Hitler didn't like colonies. He, in Mein Kampf, argues against Germany pursuing overseas colonies. He thought it would make Germany weaker. His thinking was that. Uh, were Germany to wrest back its colonies, then certainly that would put it into conflict with the British. It would mean that Germany would have to develop a, a large navy in order to protect its overseas colonial empire, and that would just make things worse with the British. And he didn't particularly want to come into conflict with the UK, so he thought that it was a bad idea for that reason. He also had this whole philosophy, like his central philosophy, that the German people were going to die out someday if they did not have access to enough food, that agricultural production was the most important thing for the future of Germany. How do you do that? Well, he says, intensified agriculture, like what they were trying to do in internal colonization, and he calls them out by name, uh, intensifying agriculture is not going to cut it because eventually you're going to run up against hard borders of space, and you won't be able to feed all of the Germans. So uh, you need more space. You need Levan's realm, uh, and then you can fill that space up with Germans, and they will grow more food and allow the German race to thrive and grow. If you add overseas colonies into the mix, then he sees a danger of emigration. That germans will leave germany proper uh, for the colonies and that there won't be the the necessary connection there that effectively they will become emigrants just because of the the vastness of space his solution was a contiguous empire that this extra space that you grab up in order to put under the plow and sustain the german people needed to be connected to the rest of the reich and For that reason, the East was the space. But all the same, the project was one of settler colonialism. Um, Now, he didn't so much look to African models uh, as perhaps the United States. Um, He was influenced by Manifest Destiny. All the same, there was an element of a colonial project there.
1: Just just to clarify, because that's a really interesting point. How, How is the United States a model in the way that European, say British or French, colonial enterprise is not?
0: Well, because the United States is all on one continent. It's a contiguous empire. And the manifest destiny drive was all about depopulating a space and filling it up with americans um that is it's, as opposed to native americans and that's more or less what hitler wanted to do he praised the united states for having all of its might on one continent he says that the other empires of the world are like uh, pyramids standing on their point, their points in Europe, uh, and uh, the bulk of it is in the rest of the world, whereas the United States has it has it flipped around. The, the bulk of their pyramid is on one continent when they only touch the rest of the world with the points. So that's more or less what he wanted to do. And he even spoke of the Volga as the Mississippi of, <laughs> yeah. of uh, the East. Uh, The idea being that he was going to push all the native people past the Volga. All the same, I don't think that Hitler was drawing up a game plan based on what the United States had done. I think that he was informed about it, or at least he read a lot of cowboy books.
1: Vision, if not technologies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he he had consumed the romanticized portrait of the American West, and he wanted to do it in the German East. But once the Third Reich tried to actually realize this project and go out and conquer their Labans realm in the East, they ran up against manpower issues. They did not have enough people to fight at the front and staff the factories unless they turned to woman power instead. And the regime was hesitant to force women uh, into work if they didn't otherwise want to do so. Even though a reasonably high percentage of uh, German women were already in the workforce, the alternative was to find somebody else to do the jobs. And that is what they settled on. And the foreign labor program was introduced to bring people, usually through some form of compulsion, from the occupied territories to Germany. And once this at first small population of foreigners began to grow and become become pretty substantial, there was the the issue of how did the presence of foreigners, the importation of foreigners on top of that, jibe with Nazi ideology? How were they going to endanger the german population or benefit the german population and i suggest that the foreign worker program was kind of an innovation on the colonization of spaces outside of the metropole in that it brought the colonized people to the colonizer rather than the other way around and once Foreigners, particularly uh, Poles and uh, Soviet workers, Ostarbeiter, uh, were introduced into the Reich in great numbers, and apartheid—a system—was developed that used these same technologies of uh, controlling space, marking workers, uh, prohibiting sexual contact between foreigners uh, and Germans, in order to control them to extract value from them, and also to make the case that there was not a conflict between Nazi ideology and the presence of foreigners. There was a very careful effort to always set up Germans in positions of authority over foreigners to demonstrate the different places in, in the social hierarchy, to really show the, the benefits of being a member of the Volksgemeinschaft, the, of the, the community, in opposition to uh, those who are outsiders.
1: And with that, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. But next time, we're going to be talking through the main body arguments of Chris's dissertation. If you've ever wanted to know more about forced foreign labor, the larger program, the lived experience, the life of a foreign worker under the bombs, in the camps, and most importantly, how toward the end of the war, things turned from conscription and discipline toward mass execution, then I commend the next installment to you. It's a good one, and there is more. I'm not sure if I might break off the last section at this point. It's pretty lengthy. As you might imagine, discussing Chris's work, we get into some great detail. And toward the end, we actually started outlining the article that, we started this entire podcast to publish eventually. So you can look forward to that next time. And if not, there's going to be a good old fashioned, wait a minute, how can you say that? Let's go digging through the documents, type back and forth coming up in the near future. So with that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time.